that's one of the things that people kind of say, yeah, you know, old guys do that. We have a bit of a license to do that. Hi, I'm Darren Woolley, founder and CEO of Trinity P3 Marketing Management Consultancy, and welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down with an old friend, someone I've known since last millennium. Back then, he was a senior writer at Ogilvy and created such memorable lines as, If pain persists, aren't you lucky for Mattel Games? Then we worked together at JWT, where he's a senior strategist. It was a career change that took him to New York via Tokyo to become the global planning director. Then he was director of international planning at BBDO in Munich, but today he's an associate partner at the world-famous Hofstede Insights. Welcome to Managing Marketing, Marty Carafa. Welcome, Marty. Oh, fantastic to see you again, Darren. Good to be talking to you. Well, look, uh, we do these days catch up less regularly than when we're working together, but nevertheless, it's always uh, great enjoyment and always a conversation that I walk away with much to reflect and think about. So I'm looking forward to today. Uh, And same here. And one of the reasons for that is uh, you posted online the fact that you've been doing some research around this idea of getting old. And I know particularly for both of us having worked in the advertising industry, getting old is not actually a positive thing, is it? Well, I find it a positive thing. Uh, And in fact, the older I get, uh, the better I get. Uh, And it, it just being able to call on experience and uh, the wisdom that I've learned from lots of other people, I find it a real asset in what I do now, particularly uh, in my current consultancy, which is about culture. That is, what are the values that we hold? And definitely when in the 1950s and 60s, they coined the phrase youth culture, it recognized that different generations do have different cultural values. Uh, things that they find important, things that they find good and bad. Yeah, but I've found the advertising industry has got a reputation for once you make the 50 over 50 list, it's sort of the end of your career, whereas the 30 under 30s are the hot rockets on the way up. It's interesting, isn't it, that youth culture, particularly in advertising, has become such the dominant culture. Well... In many ways, um, I can understand it, right? And uh, it ignores the fact that the vast majority of the, uh, you know, disposable income that can be spent on uh, marketable goods is in the hands of older consumers, you know, specifically, uh, you know, consumers over 50 have a lot of discretionary income. But... To me, it feels a little bit like, um, well, let me, t- let me tell you a story. Yeah. Um, there's much talk about digital natives. True? Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. And um, I think back when you and I were actually working together at JWT, you may remember that I became a naturalized Australian. Right? So I trotted down to the Pran Town Hall, held up my hand. 
affirmed my loyalty to the now late Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, and uh, I became an Australian citizen. Would an Australian politician, would anybody reasonable say, you know, he wasn't born here. He has other experiences from other places. Um, you know, that means he really can understand us. So therefore, maybe we shouldn't let him vote. Maybe we shouldn't include him in community groups. Um, well, yeah, yeah, I'm not a digital native, but I like to think I'm a fully assimilated digital immigrant and maybe more valuable because of the experience that I bring. And even now, um, I find it astonishing that people of all generations, of many generations say, uh, you know, Snapchat, I don't really understand it. I don't use it. Well, I don't use Snapchat either. But does that mean I can't understand it? Does that mean I don't know about it? Does that mean maybe I won't use it in the future. I got a lot of, you know, a lot of reaction when I was speaking at, uh, in fact, a Slovenian HR conference. And somebody asked me, you know, how do we take older workers and get them to unlearn things? And I, my immediate response was, I'm not going to unlearn anything, frankly. Just because I have a calculator doesn't mean I'm going to forget long division. And if long division works, I'm going to use it. But I'm not going to ignore the advantages of a calculator simply because of the way it's always been done. And older professionals and older workers really do have that advantage, I think, in being able to say, no, we'll, we'll pick up on anything that is useful and productive. Uh, and also uh, have greater perspective to, uh, to look at it. It's interesting because as you were um, explaining and telling that short story, I was thinking that it's not actually about unlearning, it's about learning more or adding to what you already know, which is the basis of learning. You can't learn something that you can't relate to. Everything we learn, we actually automatically relate to our experience past and, and present, and then we add to it. But I'm just wondering, because I have friends, you know, I turned uh, 61 this year, and I have friends my age that feel much older. And what I notice is that at some point they stopped learning and stopped being curious about the world. And that's why they feel much older. Is that, is that in, in the work that you've been doing, is that one of the things that is the measure of old? Well, as you know, Julian Harcourt, who runs a consultancy, database consultancy for uh, older consumers in London called Grey Afro, and uh, James Cloninger, who runs the uh, geocultural agency Motif in Washington and I, came together to talk about how to be a cool old guy. And that's a study we're conducting. We're uh, planning to launch that sometime in March of next year. We did some preliminary research on, on that. And other generations who say, what's cool and what's uncool about being an old guy? And we said guy simply because we are guys, number one. And number two, guys sometimes need a little extra help looking at themselves in the mirror. So what makes somebody of your age and my age cool? And you've hit it on the head. Absolutely. If you use 
your experience is an excuse not to stay curious, that's very, very uncool. And that's what people say. Uh, it doesn't matter if you feel more comfortable, right, with using or, um, uh, you know, enjoying the anchor that certain cultural symbols that you're familiar with uh, provide for you. But to say that you can't look at other things and appreciate them, you know, the work of other generations, other cultures, national cultures, other ethnic cultures from your own, you can certainly, uh, you know, uh, then you're certainly pretty uncool. And that was absolutely the case. We interviewed for the preliminary How to Be Cool Guy study. We interviewed a Gen Z influencer. And uh, he said that he really admires, for example, Pharrell, Pharrell Williams, who's been in the business for a long time. But the engagement that uh, Pharrell Williams has with the generations of uh, you know, musicians following him is extraordinary. And thinking about Iggy Pop, for example, he, he peaked on the chart in uh, 2016, was his highest ever charting number. And one of the things that when you look at his biography, uh, the number of collaborations that he's done over the years is extraordinary. And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, again, that's actually not unusual for professionals of uh, maybe your age or my age. We are approximately the same age, by the way. In, in, the, in the nearest... In, in the, if we were both Generation Jones, is what they call it, which is late baby boomers. <laughs> late baby We're all about keeping up with the Joneses, came of age in the, uh, you know, in the era of Reaganomics, things like that. But we can talk about that a little more, if you like. Trinity P3. It's interesting, though, the examples you used then was the music industry, and the other example is the film and, and ent entertainment generally, you know, that there are a lot of cool guys still doing things in their 50s, 60s, and even 70s. That, uh, and it's because they're constantly pushing those boundaries. You know, they're constantly creating new things and playing new roles and, and still being cool about it. Yeah, you can't you can't push the boundaries until you've reached them, right? And that's and to me that that's one of the things that uh, certainly in advertising it's um, you know what we quaintly remember as calling advertising back in our day, Darren. Um, <laughs> especially in advertising where you have to do that, and and my experience shows that there are you know there are extraordinary achievements made. Uh, professionals of any age, uh, yeah. given given the acceptance, you know, given the the right opportunities for it, and I think it's it's interesting that you mention um, uh, you mention music, film, television, because uh, I'm going to quote you back at you on this one, Darren, because mm -hmm. you may remember um, you worked on an entertainment client at one stage when we were working together, and. Getting back to music, there is a, you, some of the research that this client did said that by the time you reach the age 20 of 23, you will have bought the majority of music that you have ever bought, right? So it's a bit like yeah. the newlyweds and the pennies in the jar under the bed, right? You, you buy, you know, if you, if you subtracted one 
uh, you know, one uh, piece of music from your purchased collection every time you bought a new one after the age of 23, you'd never end up, you know, you would actually uh, end up, uh, you know, not significantly decreasing the number. We have to ask the question, what role does music play as you come of age, right? It, music is going to mean something different to you and me, to the people who are coming of age, um, you know, in their teens, in their 20s. And that's not necessarily an ageist thing to say. It's simply a, a fact of acknowledging that, that values are formed at certain stages of life and in response to certain uh, outside experiences. There was a much wider study which looked at a range of things, like, you know, I think it was around yeah, your mid-20s. If you hadn't tried sushi, you were equally <laughs> not likely to do it. You know, if you hadn't had a tattoo by your late 20s, you were less likely to do it. And it's a behaviour that's seen in all mammals. You know, this, this transitionary stage between childhood and adulthood is where mammals experiment, particularly humans, but all mammals. And then yeah. it's a, there's a natural uh, predication to start pruning off things that are seen as, in quotes, risky and becoming more conservative. But that's quite an old-fashioned model, isn't it? This idea that just because you're getting older, you're becoming more conservative. I think it applied to my grandparents' era, but I'm not sure it even applied to my parents' or my era. Yeah, well, there's so much we could talk about there. And, and I'm, glad, I'm glad I mentioned that to you because it is an interesting point that, that you raise, that you do tend to pair off things as you get older, or I would accept at face value that it is natural as you have more experiences to be able to judge what you find valuable and what you don't. So I, I accept the results of that study. And doesn't necessarily mean it's more conservative. I mean, what is conservative? Resistant to change, right? Um, and there are cultures and there are groups, no matter what the, the generation is, who are more open and accepting of change and have a greater appetite for change. And conservatism, uh, you know, conservatism is an ugly word in many ways because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, couched in political terms. But when you say, no, I'm going to be more discerning about what I do, and oftentimes with greater age, with greater progression in one's career, one has the resources and means to do it, uh, then you definitely do it. George Bush, the George Bush Sr., uh, went skydiving for the first time at the age of 90. <laughs> And he's conservative with a capital C, I think you'll yeah, agree. Yeah, absolutely. Trinity P3. So when you look at the statistics, things like adventure travel is not, you know, uh, is not, um, uh, you know, tends to skew towards older demographics. And when we start to understand it, understand the things that actually define the generations because of the experiences that they've had, then we start looking at things. But one of the things one shouldn't do is simply say, you get older and you get more conservative, because that's, that's exactly what the, uh, the industry that we're talking about has done. That's an assumption. And, it, and it's not true at all. In fact, from our preliminary study, which was qualitative, 
Um, there are some, you know, lots of people of other generations seem to think that our generation is less conservative and less inhibited. Uh, and uh, earlier on, you, uh, uh, in our discussion, you mentioned um, uh, the phrase that, you know, as you get older, uh, you end up not giving a toss. Uh, though I think toss was not the word that we used. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, that's adventure. That's not conservatism. I'm going to do what, what I want to do. And that goes back to likely the period in which we came of age. Um, you know, our predecessors in the baby boom, uh, who were the, the early boomers, uh, raised in ultra security, which they rebelled against, said, no, let's do it now. Um, if it feels good, do it. Don't hesitate. Don't be inhibited. And disinhibition, particularly for, uh, at least in the public view, us old guys, is kind of a coolness. You know, they will say things. We, um, as part of the preliminary research, we uh, did a little bit of guided meditation. So for people who were not old guys, got them to close their eyes, did all the relaxation, said, okay, now that you're relaxed, keep your eyes closed, picture a door in front of you, uh, and behind the door is a world of cool old guys. And one of the things that everybody liked about traveling into that world was lack of inhibition. Like, and they all said, I opened the door and it was noisy. Everybody was talking, <laughs> everybody was playing. You know, a lot of it was scribble, but that didn't matter. You know, uh, there was a lot of sports and, you know, the usual, you know, talking drivel about sports just to, just to hear the words between, between two people. And it was interesting because that's kind of admirable. It's something that, you know, again, not making generalizations about generations because there's a huge variation within generations. It's something that, um, you know, it's kind of our superpower as cool old guys. It's interesting though, isn't it, that a lot of advertising for an older audience or to a, a, an older demographic does reflect the stereotype you know that it's the gray hair it's the you know the you know playing golf or going on the you know world discovery tour or all this very sedate and you know quite boring um activities well I, from my perspective i see is quite boring you know the types of things that you know i see what i would call old people doing and i'm you know, feel like I'm 20 years away from even contemplating any of those behaviours. Why are those stereotypes so prevalent, particularly around advertising and marketing? Well, partly because, and let me be quite blunt here, personal experience, uh, my boomer, uh, you know, co-culturalists, you know, people in our generation, we've been pretty ageist ourselves, Right. It was Abby Hoffman in the 1960s who said, never trust anybody over 30. Um, mm. And it's an extraordinary thing. that We lived through the cult of youth. And if, and in many ways, we're, we're more ageist than, uh, uh, than some of our younger colleagues who often find people of our generation cool, simply because, you know, there are cool people in every generation. 
and I think that's that's part of it. There is, you know, the the issue of simple animal things, like do you become more sexually attractive, alluring? Um, do you attract more ideas that you know you're going to be optimistic when you're younger? Uh, and that's unrealistic nowadays. Even if we do acknowledge that at the end of life there are other issues and other things you would uh, you have to address apart from the usual discretionary. Uh, uh, the usual imagery that drives discretionary purchases at other at other mm-hmm. generations. So, uh, I recall that there was a. Well, let me let me go back. The, there is a move against using demographics as targeting, right? Uh, and many activists, some of whom uh, both you and I know and and whose opinions we absolutely respect and value, uh, are saying that it's actually harmful. Harmful stereotypes in the way so let's throw out uh let's throw out uh let's throw out demographic targeting um that being the case there are some things that you would say yeah well it does seem to follow uh age but it doesn't just follow age if you have demo if you make demographic targeting uh and only and just stop at that uh, then that's a that's a real problem. Take golf, for example. Um, if there is no doubt that golf is expensive, older generations tend to have more money. Younger generations also golf. They golf in public courses. They, um, uh, you know, they will buy you know have a putter, a slicer, and a driver, and uh, do it out in uh, you know out in the uh, out in a field somewhere. The numbers are not that great, simply because, firstly, you know, the image of golf as an older person's game. Uh, And secondly, it's just, you know, that they simply don't do it. It's not one of those Mm. things. Time in, uh, uh, you know, having the time resources as well as the money resources, a really good golf course is frighteningly expensive. So you're going to have to, because marketing, again, is about playing the odds. There's no question about that. And one of the things that is going to tip the odds is knowing how old people are. You know, that said, that's marketing, playing the odds. The other side of it, and this is where we get back to the industry, the other side of it is saying, uh, is committing the ecological fallacy. Uh, because Germans tend to like beer, this guy's German, therefore he's going to like beer. Right. That, as a matter of social justice, is impossible. Okay, maybe uh, there are, uh, you know, professions that require a certain physical uh, strength that you don't, that you naturally lose in the course of your life. That's why we have to work harder to make sure that those older citizens. Uh, and that means older professionals who are stakeholders in an agency uh, are, you know, you, you, you go to the extra mile to make sure that they're, uh, that they're accommodated and that you're not making judgments about, about age in hiring decisions, for example. Yeah. And as well, I mean, there is, you know, if you are in a meeting and there's a lot of chatter uh, and somebody uses a hearing aid, you have to make sure that that person who uses the hearing aid, whatever their age, 
is going to be accommodated. Trinity P3. It's interesting because you know, it does go beyond just ageism, doesn't it? It's the whole issue of uh, we become more and more aware that the stereotypes that were shorthand or, or a shortcut to classify people into groups have become less and less relevant as we understand how human beings uh, don't neatly fit into uh, pigeonholes as much as perhaps we once believed. And, and one of the interesting things I, I noticed about um, the Hofstede Insights group is that you do a lot of cross-cultural work across different uh, races and, and, you know, and, and countries. This ageing, is it consistent across the various sort of commercial markets or is, it, uh, is there some that are you know, quite different in their attitudes towards the older generation? Well, let, let me just go back to the first comment you made about stereotyping and pigeonholing, which is no longer accurate if it ever was. Uh, a, a, uh, you know, a friend of mine uh, is Bradley Sherman, who, was, uh, one, who once worked in research for the AARP and has recently written a book called The Super Age. And he talks about this period between 50 and 80 or 90, uh, which is not like the period, the life that people lived between 50 and 90 before. And among the things that affects your subjective experience and your objective quality of life is things like social class and access to health care. So mm -hmm. age is important, but it is intersectional. And for marketing, you know, because we have consumers who are affected, who are increasingly affected by uh, intersectional values, uh, you know, intersectional influences, uh, you know, a marketer has to take that into account. But then looking at what's the culture of the generations, and yes, the answer is, is yes, enthusiastically. There are uh, groups, and this is, again, we don't, we don't commit the ecological fallacy at all at Hofstede Insights. Uh, one of the things which is noticeable is that experiences create values. So let's say something like, um, something like uh, discounting behavior. There is a dimension of cultural difference which Hofstede calls long-term orientation. Uh, Minkoff calls it flexible identity, and there are many other things. And it's about our attitudes to change. And contrary to popular belief, everybody has to accept change. That's just part of the human condition is accepting change. There are some who say, and Hofstede calls them short-term orientation, and I'll hasten to add that's not something where we should create a value judgment. Short-term is not necessarily better than long-term all the time. Uh, short-term orientation and uh, where you tend to act in the moment. You need more sensations in the products that you buy to give you the, the impression, or and oftentimes it's a correct impression, that something is happening, that you're getting value for money, that there's some effect being had. Long-term oriented cultures tend to say, uh, I will do a little incrementally every day. And it's my obligation to do that. If you're not changing that, you know, past and future is a continuum. It's not, 
you know, if we're going to have change, it's got to be big and it's got to hurt. So the disruptocrats versus the incrementalists is a cultural difference around the world. And that's certainly the case in our generations, mm-hmm. right? The generation of uh, which you and I grew up in were used to having products that had an immediate effect. They felt good. And that also goes to discounting. We, statistically, not you, not me as individuals, I hasten to add, but statistically, we're more likely to react to a discount. We'll be brought into the market by a discount simply because we say, oh, that's a limited time opportunity. I'm not averse to doing something impulsive because it feels good or I can see the amount I'm saving or whatever. Younger generations, on the whole, again, not talking about any individual, playing the odds, tend to be much more scrimp and splurge, right? I'll yeah. uh, scrimp on the necessities, splurge on the luxuries, which is where, you know, boomers like us, right? You know, we snigger about avocado toast, but that avocado toast was planned for and budgeted for and everything in, in most cases. So that, and that's something that, that is a difference amongst the generations. So you, you, you're old enough to remember, um, I know my mother was a great devotee uh, of Kmart shopping. And you may remember, I think you might've even worked on the account back in the day, uh, the red light special. Do you remember that? Yes, well, uh, I worked on the Maya bargain basement and there was a definite formula that would say it was all about hurry and get it now, ladies. And it was always ladies. Hurry and get it now. The red light's flashing. It's just on for, you know, today. It was all about that uh, immediacy, but also the reward of getting something for half price. Yeah, and that's, that's something which is not unique to our generation, but it is disproportionate. That, that value, that sad, sense of satisfaction is disproportionately felt by people in our, our generation. Whereas, you know, uh, for a younger generation, and again, generalizing here, not the same for everybody, is uh, much more like if there's a red light special and things like that. No, I would rather save for the exact thing that I want. And that's the and that's interesting because that reflects countries around the world. Here in Germany, where I live now, um, about forty percent of cars are bought on finance, you know, on a deal. Uh, in the UK, which is much more the culture where, uh, you know, again, Hofstede, uh, sorry, Hugh Burston. Uh, my colleague calls them contest cultures, the English-speaking cultures. Take U- the UK, for example, 75% are bought on, uh, on finance of some kind. So do I have it now? Do I save up for it? You know, and Asian cultures tend to be the save up for it ones as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's much less generational variation in places like Germany and Japan on that particular difference than there is in our kinds of cultures, either, you know, the, the far Western Europe cultures like the Netherlands, the UK, North America, Australia. Uh, it goes down to something as well, like if you are a bit skinned, are you going to buy something now? Uh, or are you going to save up for what you really want? 
And so things like, for example, um, premium brands. If you suddenly become skint, there are places that ha have this short-term uh, mentality who say, well, I'm just going to uh, cut down the package size, but I'm still going to get my premium brand. And that's something that we can see. Whereas if you have a long-term orientation, you say, no, I'm going to sacrifice the premium brand for things like, uh, you know, generics, pasta, paper towels, things like that, but still have the, the big splurge on the, on the fancy car, which that enables, right? So it's no yeah. accident that places like Aldi, the, the scrimp on the basics places, places like Lidl, uh, many of them have an origin in some place like Germany. So the perception of price is something that differs throughout generations. And there is a real um, correlate with cultural differences amongst, uh, amongst both nationalities and ethnic groups. Now, I don't want to go into the ethnic groups side because that can be easily misunderstood. But there are differences, especially along that line, and they're not what you might think. And married to a Chinese woman, I absolutely live with those uh, ethnic differences on a day-to-day -day basis. Much to my joy, by the way, because it's the differences that make life interesting, isn't it, well, Marty? As you know, I'm married to a Japanese man. And I have to say that all of these tools that I use professionally, I will walk into the kitchen and I can see at least three of those cultural dimension differences at work. Uh, things like, uh, and, and, it, and it's important when we, when we talk about money, for example, as I've just said, you could imagine what somebody who's short-term indulgent and long-term uh, long restrained um, you know, planner, uh, what we have. It, it goes to criticism, for example, if you're in a long-term culture, and both China and Japan are long-term cultures, there tends to be a good deal of criticism of each other. I can see yeah. you nodding your head there on the screen. No, no, absolutely. You know, there, there is a totally different approach to to values, yeah, for instance. Yeah, because you know. you're always I, obliged I, to be const constantly improving by a little bit. Yeah, yeah. There's a, that sense of, in fact, you know, and it, some of the uh, some of the day to day interactions I've been putting down to just my inner child. But uh, you know, because I often feel that. Uh, my wife shows maturity way beyond her years uh, when she's admonishing me for some of my, let's say, more impulsive decisions. Yes, yes, there, there is that. And getting back to the generations, if the generations are more, are less impulsive, you can imagine that a lot of the criticisms that are made of the, of the older generations by the younger generations are tinged with that. What are you doing? Trinity P3. I remember listening to um, Bill Mayer talk about Greta Thunberg. And he talks about, you know, the, the OK Boomer phenomenon and being criticized by younger people. And he does a very long spiel about being, uh, about acknowledging that boomers have been uh, irresponsible in the way that we've treated the planet. Um, and then he immediately says, yeah, but, you know, uh, what are you doing? Uh, when I see you, you know, and he actually used those two dreaded words, avocado toast. You know, yeah, what are you Gen Z doing about all this? 
you know, I don't see you lifting a finger. And I thought to myself when I heard it, what planet are you on, Bill Mayer? Right? The number of vegans amongst, say, Generation Z is, is you know, vastly more than amongst boomers. The, the, uh, you know, the fact that uh, you know, people in Generation Z and millennials are buying fewer cars. They tend to be doing more cycling, they, you know, partly because they, they have the fitness to do it. But you know, so how many fewer are actually getting driver's licenses on those, those ethical grounds? And that's where our maybe cultural blinders of our generation can affect how we perceive other generations. Is why, of course, we, we earn the epithet okay boomer so often. <laughs> and Karen, but that's only if you're a, a, a female. Yeah, we, 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 could, we could get into we could get all sorts of trouble there. Yes. <laughs> well, and, and it doesn't um, mean we shouldn't discuss it either, but you know, it, no. Uh, not not in this discussion, I think. It was interesting that you uh, raised Bill Mayer. I think one of his big criticisms on one of his shows, he was saying, uh, Greta, he looked at the number of um, Instagram followers she had compared to Kylie Jenner and said that clearly young people prefer private jets and, uh, and, and opulence than they do to saving the planet. But you have to remember that Bill Mayer is a comedian and a social commentator, and he will always look for the ridiculousness in his, the way he presents something. I, I'm not sure he's ever set himself up to actually be a spoken authority <laughs> on the actual underlying science of, uh, of cultural yeah. and, and um, generational differences. Trinity P3. It's fascinating talking with you, Marty, because... Uh, it's been, uh, it, there's so much going on in my head at the moment, I'm actually not sure which way to go. <laughs> well, one of the things that, that I might just uh, pick up on is jokes. Because we, we hear a lot of people uh, of our generation saying, oh, you can't joke about anything anymore. And that's absolutely right. You know, that is absolutely the case. Uh, you know, just as a cultural exercise, I've done a bit of a study of those comedians. So for example, the Kyle Jenner point, right? Uh, I would hazard to say that Gen Z is not averse to a private plane ride. Who isn't? But they're going to save it as a special experience. It's that scrimp and save, right? In your day-to-day -day life, you're scrimping on the things that destroy the planet so that there is one or two times when you say this is an indulgence, where you actually do get on a plane and go to um, Thailand and have an eco-friendly trekking expedition or whatever. And that's a fundamental difference in attitudes. But also, what we were talking about earlier, which is not having no filter, you know, being uninhibited, that's, the, that's one of the things that people kind of say, yeah, uh, you know, old guys do that. We have a bit of a license to do that. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to uh, you don't want to um, uh, abuse that license. There are things, there is such a thing as being a, re a responsible grown-up. And have men of our generation neglected the uh, obligation to be a responsible grown-up? Sometimes we have. Sometimes not being a responsible grown-up is the healthy thing to do, and we're setting a good example. 
So mm. those kinds of questions are the things that, you know, again, I hate to use the word intersectionality because I'm sure I will be picked up on my use of the word intersectionality. Uh, but there are so many social influences in play right now. I recall, you know, John Cleese, for example, is having a, um, a one-man war on woke. Well, he's not one man. There are many others. Mm. But I saw him about three or four years ago here in Munich because he likes touring in the German-speaking world. He's speaking German. Uh, on his last chance to see me before I die tour, cheerfully titled. <laughs> and I noticed that um, next month he's playing Southern Germany again. So I, I was disappointed I only got him on the second last chance to see him before he died. But he then started telling, you know, ethnic jokes, some of which were funny, you know, all right, you know, admitting stereotypes. Uh, and many of the, uh, I noticed there's a movement uh, in Australia that, uh, you know, Gen Z uh, Indian and Chinese heritage comics are extraordinarily useful and say some extraordinary things about their own ethnicities, which is absolutely fine. There are cultural differences amongst us all, and it's something, and laughing about them can, uh, can help make them uh, more, uh, you know, easier to understand. Yeah, and, and give well, uh, you and I, sorry, but uh, at JWT, there was uh, the uh, the Wogs Club, the self-titled uh, Wogs, which they'd owned that, and I think they were emboldened by the Wogs out of work and that whole, but, you know, this was an ethnic group within our workplace that, uh, you know, a group of young men that were wearing it as a badge of pride when, you know, earlier in our, in my life, anyone to use that term, it was such a, a, a phrase of derision and, and um, you know, so I, th I think that's where these comedians, they bring a voice to that, that racial group or that cultural group within a society and show a perspective with permission in many ways because they're members of that group. Yes, and, and that look, that's that's the important thing. You can easily tell when a joke goes beyond, right? Yeah. It's not like it's difficult to tell, uh, you know. And if you are belittling, humiliating, dismissing an ethnic group, then you're definitely you're out of line, and you always have been, right? And to yeah, I think that yeah, and to Sorry. to say. You know, one of the th great things that our colleagues uh, did was they said, yeah, we're different. And a lot of the people were creative, for example. They weren't mm. in the, the classic, I have to glad hand my elitist client uh, people. I'm going to say that. You know, there, was, there, was a, enor there is enormous social class differences in ad agencies. Uh, mm. Maybe the discipline of planning was, uh, you know, arose out of it. So anyway, Darren, I interrupted you. No, no. Look, uh, Martin, I've just realised that we've been talking for uh, quite a while. Um, unfortunately, we've we've run out of time. I do have to, first of all, thank you, but also say you are clearly a cool old guy and I really want to celebrate you for becoming that person. So thank you. Oh, and there's a lot of things to become yet, let me assure you. <laughs> 
Well, you've just uh, you've got to live that life now. I, I do have a question for you though, because there's always someone that inspires uh, someone. So who who is the cool old person that inspires you? Thank you.